0: Welcome to the Coaching at Henley podcast from Henley Business School. This podcast is for anyone interested in exploring the question, why coaching? Here, you'll be joining us in our conversations as we aim to spark provocative thinking, research, and practice in the discipline of coaching. In the Coaching at Henley podcast, we share our thoughts, experiences, and views on a vast range of topics linked to coaching and behaviour change. Each episode is split into segments where we either explore a piece of coaching-related research and the implications for practice, debate a hot topic in coaching, answer listener questions, or learn from a guest speaker. Welcome to this episode of the Coaching at Henley podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by my colleagues, Abudi Sharbi, a lecturer in coaching. Hi, Abudi. Hi, and Holly Andrews, an Associate Professor in Coaching. Hi, Holly. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And in this episode, we have three segments, as always. Firstly, we're going to have Coaching at Henley Discusses, followed by our Spotlight on Research, and then finally, we've got an Expert Interview. So Coaching at Henley Discusses is the part of the podcast where we take a topic, potentially a controversial topic or a provocative topic, and we discuss it. We share our opinions with the aim of learning from one another and ideally provoking some thinking in our listeners. And we'd always love to hear from you in terms of what you thought about the topics that we discussed and for you to share your perspectives. So our topic to discuss in this episode is... What can coaches learn from having an understanding of the dark triad? So before we get into this question, Holly, as our resident dark traits expert, can you explain what exactly is the dark triad?
1: I'll try and do a 30-second summary. So the dark triad consists of three what I'm going to call patterns of personality. I'm not going to call them personality disorders because they're not full-blown personality disorders but what we're looking at is narcissism psychopathy and machiavellianism now these three are distinct but they've got some overlaps so narcissism is all about kind of excessive self-regard or self-love and a real sense of entitlement that's kind of the core of narcissism psychopathy is so focuses around a charming presentation but a lack of empathy with that, being opportunistic and parasitic in the way that you live, and engaging in antisocial behaviour. And Machiavellianism, this has come from the writings of Machiavelli, particularly his book, The Prince. And it's about the acceptability of manipulation tactics to get what you want. It's about having a cynical view of humanity, and about adopting an ends justify the means kind of morality. So, At the core of all these, sometimes called the dark core, is that they're all associated with being disagreeable. We're thinking about the big five of personality, the opposite of being agreeable. And that can manifest as interpersonal antagonism. So basically, you're not particularly pleasant in interpersonal interactions. A callousness and a willingness to manipulate other people and being exploitative.
0: Right. Wow. Okay. So now we've got a bit of a shared understanding of what we mean by the dark triad. Let's come back to our topic for discussion today, which is what can coaches learn from having an understanding of the dark triad? So, Abudi, I'd love to hear what are your thoughts about this topic?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting because as I hear some of those characteristics, I go, well, I have some of those on a bad day and I've certainly had some of those in the past and I think they're actually quite common in the world, you know. I mean, I think if you look at politics, you can see a lot of those characteristics at play. I think for me there's a danger in how do you navigate between labelling somebody as having one of these personality traits as a coach, without the information and knowledge to do that. And at the same time, recognising that these might be expressed to a lesser extent in many people without necessarily being in that full-blown personality disorder that you mentioned earlier.
1: Well, yeah, you've picked up on two really important points there, Abudi. One about this idea of, you know, do we actually have a cutoff point where somebody is narcissistic or psychopathic or Machiavellian and... And historically, that's how diagnosis of personality disorders worked and to an extent it still does. You are assessed against all the criterion. Once you get past a certain cutoff score, that's it, you've got the label. But as you said, I think what we know now is that the, the traits associated with these kinds of patterns of personality are present to a greater or lesser extent across the entire population. And when you read papers around this area, it's quite often referred to as the normal population. So if you hear me use that terminology, I'm not making the assumption that some people are normal and some aren't. That's just the, the terminology that's used for people who don't have a diagnosable personality disorder. So yes, absolutely, there's a continuum. And there's that contextual side as well. I think you picked up on that actually in some circumstances, it may be advantageous to have certain a certain degree of... some of these traits and certainly a lot of researchers focused recently around the business world and identifying that people in leadership positions may be more likely to possess higher levels of these traits because they allow people to climb that greasy pole if you will.
0: I think that's such an interesting point Holly and I, I think if we think about leadership and especially some of the traditional Ideas that we have around leadership and what makes an effective leader that I think still influence people's career success to some extent. They absolutely are some of the characteristics that you were talking about when you defined the tar- dark triad. So We might not call it manipulation, but being able to persuade people to come on board with your projects and ideas and be your supporters when you're pitching an idea to a team is absolutely one of the skills that leaders have to have, or perhaps negotiating with their manager to try and allocation of resources to their team is an important leadership skill. And even things like being ruthless, sometimes you do have to be a bit ruthless in leadership. You have to make tough decisions. If you don't have any element of ruthlessness in your personality, I'm guessing it would make being a leader a really uncomfortable place to be, which you kind of grapple and make sense with some of the decisions that you might have to make, which are tough decisions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, you wouldn't want really low levels of these things either, which makes it difficult to identify how much is too much. Where they have benefits, we've already discussed, but I think... The drawback, if you've got a lot of these traits in combination, is that it makes relationships with people really difficult. And certainly for the people that you're interacting with, it makes their experience difficult. The psychopath, narcissist or Machiavellian may be perfectly fine, uh, but the people they're working with may be really suffering. And that may be where a coach is called in at that point to help somebody with managing their relationships. So I think that's why this may become relevant to coaching. I don't know, Abudi, have you ever had any experience of coaching anybody you think may have some of these traits?
2: I'm sure that I have. I can't think of any specific examples right now, but whilst we were talking, I was thinking about someone like Steve Jobs who displayed a lot of very difficult personality characteristics and people would say they were terrified of being caught in a lift with him because he might turn on them and they might lose their job by the end of the lift ride. And then I think about coaching and I suppose I think if we're coaching people who demonstrate some of the qualities of ruthlessness or high persuasion, to use uh, your word, Rebecca, you know, Mike, and work with people on their relationships. You know, I think your question, Holly, about how much is too much is really useful here because, of course, imagine the situation where someone would be coached out of their behaviours and then become less effective in what they were trying to achieve. And I, I do think Steve Jobs is a great example of that because, you know, very problematic and almost the opposite of what we might teach in a leadership setting and yet created an amazing company with amazing products.
1: Yeah, for me... I worry for coaches, potentially, interacting with dark clients. Um, I was listening to the first podcast in this series and about uh, Trisha Riddell, where she was talking about how we need to know that we're coaching a brain, and knowing how the brain works is really important. And certainly, my particular interest is psychopathy out of the dark triad. And we know that there are differences in brain structure and brain function of people who are clinically psychopathic that changes the way they react to things like threat and emotion. So, for example, they don't show the, the same kinds of reaction to emotion that most people would. And that can then make a coach's job really difficult because All the techniques that you're used to using within coaching to tap into things like the default mode network where you're trying to get people in touch with their more emotional side and thinking about their impact on people, you're not going to be able to leverage that with people who've got very high degrees of psychopathic traits and if you're not aware of these kind of areas as a coach it may become a really stressful experience to, to try and coach somebody with these traits and you may not be able to adapt uh, to that what they might need need
0: I really love that idea Holly and I guess my perspective on this was I always feel like knowledge is useful so For coaches, I think the more you can learn about differences and behavior and group dynamics and all of these fundamentals that influence how we behave. I I believe that helps you as a coach because it equips you with more information that can influence what you do. But I guess I'm just wondering, is this really an issue for most coaches? I mean, surely not many of them will be coaching psychopaths or Machiavellian individuals. Is this something coaches, listeners need to be concerned about, do you think?
1: I think so. Every time I do a talk or talk to people about my area of research, people always tell me that, yes, they know somebody like this, they've worked with someone like this, they've tried to coach somebody like this. We know roughly population estimates are quite difficult, but For psychopathy, for example, you're looking at about 1% in the overall population would meet the criteria for being clinically diagnosable as a psychopath. And actually, when we go into business, the estimates rise up to between 3.5% to 5%, depending on whose studies you're looking at, at higher levels of management in organisations. And if you combine that base rate with the fact that these people are likely to be having issues with relationships, they're likely to then be referred for coaching if that's what the organisation uses as an intervention. I think it's unlikely that they would refer themselves. They don't tend to have the kind of insight into themselves. Or if they do, it's not a problem for them. Totally lacking in remorse and empathy for other people and just taking what you want. Life is great for you in that scenario. Feeling no guilt for anything that you do, how fantastic. But for those around you, it can be carnage.
0: Well, it's a fascinating subject, and I, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this section. But as always, we'd love to hear what you all think please do send us your comments, feedback, questions. What's your experience? Have you ever coached a psychopath or someone else that you feel has got dark triad traits? And how did you cope with it? We'd love to hear.
1: In this next section of the podcast, we are having a spotlight on research and continuing with our theme around the dark triad. The paper that we're going to be looking at in this segment is called My Client, the Narcissist, Critical Thoughts on Dealing with the Term Narcissism in Coaching by Yannick Zimmerman and Julianne Friedrichs. Uh, It's originally a German paper, but you can get the translation. And it's a conceptual piece. So it's putting forward kind of theoretical viewpoint Point of using the term narcissism in coaching and labeling our coachees uh, as narcissistic. So, to give a brief overview of what this paper is about. They cover the background, and we've talked a little bit about this in the previous segment of this podcast. But for those who've just jumped to this segment, we're talking about narcissistic traits, uh, which are generally excessive self-regard, self-love, and entitlement. But these authors actually draw out the fact that the term narcissism, there isn't a universally accepted definition for narcissism, despite the fact that it's commonly used. And we think we know what it means. Actually, there are lots of different variations. So for example, there's grandiose narcissism, which is what we've just been talking about, what we tend to think of as narcissistic. But some authors actually say that there's a vulnerable side to narcissism. So vulnerable narcissism is around being highly sensitive to criticism, that your self-image is excessively affected by what others say or think about you. And it can be really quite distressing for the person who's got that kind of vulnerable narcissistic side. There are also authors that distinguish between adaptive and maladaptive grandiose narcissism and there's no general consensus. So their first point in this paper is that actually we don't really know exactly what we're talking about when we refer to narcissism. So that makes a difficulty in using the term narcissistic coachee. They also highlight that actually there isn't much research in this area, certainly not around coaching with narcissism. And where there is, it's not necessarily done with validated measures. So we don't know if we are actually looking at narcissism in the work that's been done. And then they also talk about there are some potential implications for the coaching relationship. So labelling a coachee, as narcissistic can actually make you close down other hypotheses as to what's going on in that coaching relationship and kind of place all the blame on the coachee. So this is opening up another side. Actually, a little bit of knowledge about something like narcissism for a coach might actually be a bad thing. So Rebecca, I'm always dragging you into the dark side. So what are your thoughts on the ideas in this paper?
0: Well, I've got a lot of thoughts, as always, when it comes to research. And I guess there's a few things that jump out immediately, which or draw my attention. I guess I'm thinking along the lines that I'm not sure I agree with all of the arguments around the issues with, Labeling in itself, because the fact that narcissism is not clearly defined is not unique to narcissism. This is something that we find time and time again across lots of different constructs. And I've talked about it previously on the podcast, but one of my PhD students was interested in self awareness very common term. We talk about self-awareness all the time. Guess what? It was poorly defined and understood. So even coaching itself, we had a debate in one of our team meetings this week about what is executive coaching? What is coaching? These terms that we even have in our job titles are not clearly understood or commonly agreed on. So I'm not surprised that narcissism isn't commonly agreed on. I don't think that that's an... Issue in itself. I think we can do something about that as researchers. We can do some research in order to clarify the definition and identify where are the boundaries between narcissism and other personality traits, for example. But it doesn't mean we need to abandon the concept entirely or not use it. Because for me, something like a a term like narcissism is almost like a shortcut. If we can have an agreed shared understanding of what that means, it means we can use that common language to get to the crux of what it means quickly. So if you're coaching someone and you suspect that they might be narcissistic, it gives you that shortcut to think, right, what do I need to pay attention to here? Here, if they're coming with talking about problems, perhaps with their team, and and they've got unhappy team members, and that's one of the reasons they want they or they're struggling to get people to be motivated or uh, buy into their project or whatever it might be, you might be thinking, oh, I want I'm going to explore empathy with this person. I'm going to uh, explore how are they collecting feedback and how are they responding to that feedback. Or uh, I mean, one of the ways that I always think about narcissism, and it was interesting that you highlighted that that isn't always the case, but I always think about it as being someone that has a very high self-esteem, but it's quite a vulnerable, precarious level of self-esteem that can be easily kind of violated or threatened. So if they do get negative feedback, they can take it particularly hard, which means that they resist that feedback. But that's all important data as the coach trying to support somebody that you might not immediately think is the the challenge, perhaps. And I guess just the one other point that I'll make here is, yes, it can lead to drawing conclusions about somebody which might shut down thinking. But again, something we've talked about on this podcast previously is about holding our hypotheses lightly. So you might think, oh, this person seems to be a little bit narcissistic, I'm going to explore that a little bit rather than thinking this person is definitely narcissistic and therefore I need to interact with them in a certain way. But as I said, lots of thoughts as always, but yeah, interesting. I'm guessing for you then, Rebecca,
1: that you think knowledge of disorders like narcissism is useful to coaches. Abudi, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: I mean, I'm sort of feeling a little bit out of my depth in the sense that I, I don't fully understand the terminologies here. But I think there's something about the, a new reference to Patricia Riddell earlier, Holly. You know, she said, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I think, for you know, my own lack of uh, knowledge in this field might be the point that I'm trying to make, really, which is I wouldn't know how to say this person was narcissistic or not. And I think it's useful for us as practitioners to have an awareness of, you know, human beings arrive... With baggage as we come with baggage of different kinds and knowing about that and knowing that those things are there is part of what we talk about when we talk about psychodynamics in coaching in the coaching program for instance but I think you know and students often ask about well what happens if this client shows up like that or that client shows up like this and I think the answer to that for me is always about reflecting with a supervisor Like, I don't feel qualified to talk about or know about whether somebody is narcissistic or psychopathic, as you mentioned earlier in the dark triad. But I do think that other people bring challenges for us as practitioners and we need to find a place where we can explore those rather than just going to labeling or diagnoses for the reasons that we've spoken
1: about. Well, that's a really interesting point because one of the issues the authors raise with that, with labelling is exactly that, that effectively the coach then abdicates responsibility for the difficult relationship and is less likely to reflect on their part in that relationship. It's all put down to, well, the client is this.
0: That's making me think actually about growth mindset and and goal orientation as it's often called in the psychological literature and this difference between having a mastery or learning goal orientation or a growth mindset and more of a performance approach or performance avoidance mindset because when you have the orientation to want to learn and develop, you keep all the doors open because it's you're just asking, like we do in coaching, very open questions and being very curious and thinking, well, I wonder what's going on here. I wonder what's happening with this client. I wonder why they're responding like that. And I'm going to explore that a bit more. Whereas when you have more of a, a performance mindset, you're very focused on just one option really or one route and and, and I I can see that that in my random way of thinking those two link together in that if you decide yep this person is this then I'm going to behave in this way or abdicate responsibility or whatever it is rather than maintaining that learning or mastery orientation where you think Hmm, there's some evidence that I think shows they might be a bit narcissistic. I'm going to explore that further. And so for me, they're not mutually exclusive. I think you can have the knowledge of something like narcissism. You can even use that as a term or a label, although I don't like the word label, but still be curious and have a learning approach with that rather than using it as a method to shut down. And I think this is where perhaps working with a supervisor or your own reflective practice can keep you in check with that. Think, am I using this as something to help the client or am I using this to justify something that I'm doing? Perhaps because this client's very difficult and I'm struggling to support them. Yeah, and that idea that once you've labelled
1: somebody, you can have a a devil's horn effect, so to speak, that you then begin to ascribe other negative characteristics to them and see nothing but negative and believe that they can't change. Something like narcissism is very difficult to shift. Unfortunately, we need to bring this section to a close. Final thoughts. Do we think some training on the dark side would be a good thing for coaches? Yes or no? Rebecca? Always
0: yes for me. No surprises there. (laughs) a booty?
2: I'm not sure what my response to that would be, but I think as practitioners working with human beings, we need to be always curious about human beings. And that means reading about different personality types, reflecting on ourselves. So I think staying open-minded is the thing. I'm not sure about specific training, but I definitely think we need to be curious about human beings.
1: Thank you both. We'd love to hear what you think, listeners, about this. Um, So please let us know your thoughts on whether labelling clients as narcissistic is a good thing or not.
2: Okay, so it's now time for us to shift focus. And this is the part of the podcast episode where we turn to interview a guest. And I'm very, very happy to introduce Kish Modassia, who I've known for a very long time. Kish Modassia has been coaching for many, many years. She served on the UK ICF board, and she's recently joined us on the faculty at Henley teaching in our coaching programs. And one of the specialities that Kish brings is a focus on mindfulness and self-acceptance. So Maybe we could start, Kish, by you telling us a little bit about what brought you to the practice of mindfulness.
3: So as a child, I've always been fascinated by meditation and all of that stuff. So I've been meditating for years and have been to various schools of of meditation thought. And a coaching friend from Sweden suggested that I should teach mindfulness. And I was like, I've never heard such a lot of rubbish in all my life. And she was like, I've watched you. We've been together the whole week and you should put together a mindfulness course. And I just said, you need to stop. I was quite deeply touched actually by what she had requested. And I said, don't want to talk about it anymore. And at the end of the week, she said, I'm going to advertise a mindfulness course in Sweden and you're going to go home and put the course together and come and deliver it. And whoop, that was it. So that's how my kind of exploring of of my version of mindfulness began so i took threads from all the different kind of teachings i had so the course that i've put together is around the breath which is our life force with us 24/7 without which we would cease to exist and then we've put in some gratitude writing as a reflective tool creativity mindful eating And I call it, what my take on mindfulness is, how can we make it an everyday part of our lives by finding the courage to, I used to say courage to stop, but I have kind of rewired that to say courage to pause, because that's what we just don't seem to do in this fast paced world.
2: Yeah, I think that's such an important observation. And I certainly notice, as you say, the world seems to be getting faster and faster and pausing seems to be getting more and more difficult and yet more and more important. And um, like you, I've also been practicing mindfulness for many years. I'm really interested to know how your practice of mindfulness has informed your coaching practice.
3: So I usually check with clients when we start the coaching to see if they are open to mindfulness because some people will go like, and I've really got one client who goes, don't touch me, don't touch, I don't want to be anywhere close to that stuff, so we don't. But otherwise what I do is I have a bell that goes in, goes on at the start of our coaching session and I make sure that that, well, I've set the bell so it goes off every 15 minutes during the coaching session. And I say to the client that when that bell goes, all we will do is just stop and pause and become aware of our breath. And clients really, really love it. Uh, They seem to say, gosh, that bell seems to stop at just the right time, when I need to think a little bit more.
2: That's so interesting. And I know it's also, as you were talking, that there are quite a lot of pauses in the way that you talk. And I wonder if that's also part of how mindfulness informs us as practitioners, is that we actually slow down when we're talking to clients.
3: That's an interesting observation. Yes, people say that to me and I, I don't really realize it. I think it's become a way of being. And that's what I would love. You know, I just feel that, you know, there are lots of uh, schools out there that say stop for 20 to 30 minutes a day. And we know in the world now, 20 to 30 minutes, people are thinking, gosh, I don't have that time. And so what I'm trying to say to people is, is stop one minute at a time. And I compare it to our bank balance. We have our monetary bank balance, and we top that up regularly in order to pay for the mortgage, the holidays, everything that we need. And my question is always, what are we doing with our emotional bank balance? And nine times out of 10, the answer is, I don't do a lot around my emotional bank balance. And so then it is like, well, how can I top that up a minute at a time? And somebody said last week when I didn't, like a minute is so doable. And so maybe this is a good time to just for us to explore what it's like to just pause for a minute. And so all we need to do here now is just simply become aware of the breath as it is. There's no need to change anything at all. It's simply about witnessing the breath. Letting any thoughts just float away like clouds by coming back to the breath. You can close your eyes if you want to, and you don't necessarily have to. And just feel the feet on the ground. Just notice your body. And allow your shoulders to just drop just that little bit more. And then just come back to the anchor of the breath. And then gently just come back into the space of the here and now.
2: Wow, thank you, Kish. It was so nice to have a little top-up. I did my mindfulness practice this morning, but got caught in the busyness as we all do. So that moment of pausing was really lovely. And I suppose I think there are just so many good things about mindfulness, and it makes me curious about whether you think there are any downsides to a practice of mindfulness, either for, you know, for us as practitioners of mindfulness, or when we're thinking about mindfulness and coaching.
3: For me, having done the whole course that is recommended in most places, my challenge was trying to stop for that 20 to 30 minutes a day. And then I found myself getting into that vicious circle of, oh gosh, I haven't done it. And now I need to do it. And, and I'm not saying that that course is, any, uh, is wrong. It is. It's, it's very effective and people have used it and find it really useful. But I think that with coaching, we're always trying to find what is it that makes this individual tick? And what works for them best? And so, what I do with the with the mindfulness, I say to them, well, what works for you already? What do you? Because we all have ways of coping or topping up our emotional bank balance. It may be that we reach for a glass of wine, you know, or I've heard somebody who says head banging music is the thing that really gets them zoned out. Other people go running. Other people go swimming. So. On the downside, if you find that something's not working for you, then explore what is possible that you're already doing because we all have our tools. So it's about exploring that. Don't go down in that downward spiral, but trust yourself that you have those resources, which is what we do in coaching. You know, we say the client is capable and able, and that's what we're wanting to do, to just bring that awareness and that presence. And on, on, on the other side is if you note, they say my, the, co- the quote for mindfulness is "is being in the present moment accepting what is without judgment." So sometimes it could be that when you're stopping, you're becoming aware of a part of your body that's aching. So we might we, we're kind of conditioned to think, "Oh, that's a downside, but it may not be. It's just allowing space for that to be and accepting it.
2: Yeah, I think that's really important because, as you say, we often notice things that we don't necessarily want to and then think there's something wrong with noticing rather than becoming aware. So about now is the time of year that people tend to fall off the bandwagon with their New Year's resolutions and good intentions. And I wonder how you think mindfulness can support people in accepting where they are. Maybe they're feeling a little bit disconsolate because they haven't kept up to their expectations of themselves for the year.
3: Yes, I think what's really important is, is the awareness that you've fallen off the bandwagon, because unless you're aware, you can't really do anything about it. So just becoming aware of that is great. Also, I always say it's about it's about harvesting. What have you already done? That has already started, you know, because you would have been doing something, so it's just something else to build on. Use whatever you've done already as a building block. And just restart, just rewire and restart. You know, it's as simple as that. We spend so much time beating ourselves up. It's almost like, you know, when kids fall and you say, come on, dust yourself off. It's almost like, come on, dust yourself off and just take the next step forward.
2: Yeah, that's lovely. And it makes me think about in my own mindfulness practice, when I go off and think about stuff instead of focusing on the breath, all I have to do is go back to the breath. And I love the way you've kind of brought that bit back in about rewiring and awareness. So maybe one more question for you, Kish, is if someone is thinking about starting a mindfulness practice or wants to get to know more about it, what would be some recommendations that you might make?
3: Well, there's some fabulous apps going. There's, you know, I know there's, I particularly, my personal favourite is called Insight Timer. It's I-N-S-I-G-H-T, Timer. And they are uh, trying to make that app free as possible, but it has such a huge variety of practices, yoga, meditation, chanting. You know, you could really find something that could work for you there. And what I love about it is when you finish your one minute or 10 minutes or whatever it is, it tells you how many other people around the world you've been meditating with. And that for me is just wonderful because I really feel I'm connected with so many other people when I finish my practice
2: that's lovely actually and I I have used that time before and you're right that sense of community of shared practice is really nice Kish it's really been a pleasure to talk with you
3: uh thank you so much for joining us thank you Abudi it's been an absolute pleasure too
0: so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Coaching at Henley podcast it was great to chat with you Abudi and Holly thank you for joining me And also thank you so much to our guest, Kish, for joining us and sharing her experiences. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching at Henley podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find our podcast, including other Henley business podcasts, from your usual podcast provider. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe. We'd also love to hear from you tell us what you think about the podcast and please do send us any questions you'd like us to answer you can email us via coachingpodcast at henley.ac.uk finally you can connect with us on social media to make sure you stay up to date with any coaching at henley news find the link in the show notes if you'd like to know more about coaching at henley business school check out our website